Welcome to another episode of Rehab Real Talk. It's like study hour at the bar or happy hour after a long day. The best learning happens outside the formal setting. Hosted by Nate Schwartz, Bobby Hand, and Spencer Koch. And welcome to another edition of Rehab Real Talk. I'm your host, Spencer Koch. I'm an ATP. I'm joined by Bobby and Nate, as always. Bobby Hand, DPT. How you doing, Bobby? PT, DPT, NCS, MSCS. <clears throat> we shouldn't have to say no, this every time, but it's been f- a couple weeks since the last <laughs> episode. <laughs> so apologies to our listeners. Uh, we've had a couple of personal conflicts, a couple of guest dropout. So apologies, but we're back. Nate is a student of physical therapy at VCU. Nate, how are we doing? Doing well. You keep saying couple, but I feel like a couple denotes two or less. And I feel like it's definitely more than that. I think a couple is just two. Like, that's the definition of a couple. Just two. Like, we're a couple of people. Couple of people. Couple. Two. Anyway. Okay. (laughs) But first things first, shout out to Jay Smack at Smack Sound of uh, Richmond, Virginia for making us that intro. Uh, That's dope. Uh, (laughs) That intro is fresh. That sounds so good. (laughs) Yeah, I like it a lot. Me too. Oh, I was digging it. It sounded very official. Absolutely. And way better than my voice in a microphone. That was so heartfelt and just off the cuff. Can't believe it. This whole episode is off the cuff. Actually, this whole episode is off the cuff. All right. So we haven't been back at it a while. So let's start with the student of the group, Nate, like we talked about. Nate, uh, did you pass anatomy? I did. Everybody, round of applause for me. Passed anatomy. Didn't fail. No Congratulations, buddy. Thanks. For uh, a little while there, it was kind of close. I'm not going to lie. The first test was a little harder than I thought it was going to be, and we really? had a practical that I almost got a C on. Came back, though, studied hard, spent the weekend in the lab, made an A. Thanks. Well, damn, you yeah, you played that off really well because, honestly, I thought you had an A the whole time. Yeah, no, absolutely not. I uh, it, was, it was more difficult than I thought it was going to be. I'm not the best at the rote memorization. I'm better with the processes and theories. I don't know. When you were texting that you were like, close to failing i figured that meant mm, he probably got a b minus and he's freaking out Agreed. that's exactly what happened i got an 80 but that's way too close to a c and if we get a c we're out of the program i didn't know that yeah so for this program i don't know if it's like that everywhere but c is does not get you a degree b's and up only oh, i got a two six and i'm a doctor oh my no God. i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> were you able to get c's in your program for real i don't i can't remember on, i don't think you your wife Hey, Erica. Quick shout out. Hold on. Shout out, Erica. Could you get C's in your program and still go on? No. Well, you can get C's on a, a, a test. Erica's saying you can get C's on a test, but your grades couldn't actually be C's. Yeah, if you got a C, you, you essentially failed. Right. An 80, yeah. Yeah. 80 overall, right? Nice. Glad you didn't have to worry about that, Bobby. Yeah. Some of us weren't so gifted. <laughs> it's my cross to bear. <laughs> All right. How were your grades in undergrad and like comparing both of y'alls for your transition to graduate school? How was that? Two seven. Woo woo. What up? All right. So for real? No. Oh. If you want, I'll go first because I have no problem sharing this information. In undergraduate school at Longwood University, shout out. I uh, actually graduated graduated magna cum laude, so that just means that you maintained a grade point average of three point five or above. And there were a couple of semesters where I did a little bit better, a little bit worse. But in general, I graduated with like a 3.7. I think that's right. Where I, I think I was magna. Yeah. And then I was I was cum laude for PT school. I think, that, like I think that's, that's more that right. impressive. That I impresses it was Sigma. me more. Isn't Sigma the... Sigma is the most. It's Sigma. Uh, and it's, oh, okay. I think, 3.9 and above or 4.0. That's where like that. you're probably just really book smart and your hands aren't very skilled. True story. In PT school, but... Not necessarily <laughs> true. Dope Miners does not endorse that statement. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it's also kind of funny because to graduate PT school, like if, you know, my wife just said you had to have a, an 80 or above. What were your grades in undergrad like? I think I finished like a 359 or something like that. I'd have to check my CV. Because we've talked about it, about it before and it made it you made it seem like your grades were lower than that i thought you were just humble no you just think i'm an idiot that is not true at all and no. you definitely know that 
opposite <laughs> of the truth. But the way you made it sound was that like, oh, anybody could get into PT school. And by judging by your grades, and that's not the case, 3.59 is not anybody getting into PT school. So I think that used to be the uh, the overarching impression, though. I think most folks, when it was just a bachelor's, didn't take it as seriously academically. Agreed. I mean, my mom's best friend from PT, still a practicing PT, she couldn't get into PT school, but she got accepted into multiple MD schools. That's nuts. In For real? the late 80s. Yeah. But she wanted to be a PT, so she kept applying to PT school. Damn. Think so about that now. <laughs> in my mind, my first thought is demographic applying. For the people listening that don't know, I applied to MD school for about four years, three years before I applied to PT school. And I never managed to get in. Um, I, I managed to get into a DO school in my final application cycle and decided not to go because I didn't um, believe in that particular uh, practice of medicine anymore after spending three years in the field but i didn't know that so Where'd that, you go? i got into a small do school in sarasota florida which is right next to my dad's house which is why i applied there actually the new college of florida has a do school for those of you who are thinking about do school i highly recommend it if it's what you want to do and what's the difference between a do and an md for people at home who may not know not me for sure yeah so (laughs) uh, md stands for medical doctor do stands for doctor of osteopathic medicine the biggest difference is that the do is going to use the uh, manual therapy and manipulation that you'd see from a chiro and a pt uh more often than the md so they typically do lay on hands and try to manipulate their patients Damn, that kind of sounds up your alley. It was. It was very much up my alley, but I didn't want to work within the... Um, all right, so I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't want to work within the insurance framework. I didn't want to have 15 minutes with 30 patients a day. I would rather have a more meaningful hour, which I saw at the inpatient rehab hospital, which spoke to me. Fair. But Fair. so when I was applying, um, I had very average grades for an application cycle. But at the time, uh, so at the time that I was applying, uh, right around that 2013 to 2016 uh, application cycle, so those three application cycles, as a young, recently graduated, very low experience uh, male, especially coming from... A white background? A Caucasian upper middle class background. I I did not stick out among uh, the applicant pools. Whereas I feel like back in the... 80s and 90s with the medical profession being dominated by people of my background um, a young female might have stuck out a little bit better and drawn more attention whereas in the PT field in that same time period it was mostly and still is a female dominated field can yeah. you shout um, out to the ladies shout out can you define low experience I only had a little bit of working and shadowing experience as a scribe in an emergency room and with a couple of uh, family physicians, like the family physician that treated me as a kid. So I had watched a little bit and I had written notes for doctors. That was about it. But I only had about a year of experience. What's your class ratio? Male to right female? Now, sorry. Yeah, male to female right now. So as you said, it's female dominated, right? Very much so. We the have profession is. Profession as a whole. Profession is for sure. Class as well. OT is off the charts, but PT, OT is off the charts, female dominated. Yes. But PT is like in your class. What is it? Mostly female. We have 56 total. And I, let me do some quick mental math. One, two, three. What other math are you going to do? Four, like finger math? <laughs> five, uh, maybe toe math. Uh, I would hazard a guess that we have between 12 and 15 males. Um, so oh, I don't leave any Really? Out. Damn, dude. Yeah. Hmm. Mostly female. I didn't know that. I mean, I knew it was female dominated, but honest to God, I thought it was because of where I had experience. And honestly, inpatient hospitals in a neuro field is probably going to be more female dominated because of the compassion factor that you have to have, which not saying that males can't have it, but statistically more females are going to have more compassion than males. That's real. Um, I feel like the uh, tendency towards compassion and, and, general niceness is a little bit better with our our lady compatriots and more males tend to go to the ortho sports side like we've talked about before where everybody growing up wants to do that yeah but i I didn't know that your class was that divided yeah Hmm. was your class that divided bobby i think we were closer to like 60 40 were you 
still per- female percentage though. wise yeah more female but we had a lot of guys in our class yeah there do seem to be more guys in the class above us, so I wonder if it's just our year. And who knows? This is yeah, observational trends. and anecdotal. Yeah, exactly. I can't tell you for sure. Yeah, who knows? Yeah, we talked about it before. The OT field is just swamped with females. It's, I mean, males could, I feel like, almost go anywhere they wanted to just because. <laughs> just for. They need males. The in diversity. Yep, right? exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um. All right. So that was a long story to start from anatomy. Yeah. But you passed anatomy. Congratulations. Thanks. Now, what are you taking? Uh, we have six classes this semester. So we have, let me see if I can name them all because I'll Dang probably man. forget at least one. We have our kinesiology um, overarching class, which just covers what essentially is two semesters of undergrad kinesiology condensed into one semester. Who's teaching that? Uh, Dr. Peter Pitko. Shout out, Dr. Pitko. Pete is a very smart man. He is an incredible. I didn't realize that he taught that class. Incredibly smart man. Also coaches gymnastics, which I super appreciate. He's also is an incredible clinician in terms of like what he thinks up for pediatric patients. That's awesome. That's good to hear. I'm really glad that it. Yeah. What's their CRC like the VCU? Crap. I'm gonna butcher it. But something with the rehab engineering science. Yeah, he's part of that. I don't know if he is high up in that, but he uh, got his PhD in biomedical engineering first. So he came back after his PhD to teach PT. So I feel like this is his uh, his safety school. Is that safety right? school? Sure, let's go with that. So uh, we're taking kinesiology. There's um, applied exercise physiology. That that class. Uh, has some pluses and minuses. It's based on the ACSM gu- guidelines, which I think are great in some aspects and a little lacking in others. So I'm interested to see where that goes. Um, we have an interprofessional collaboration course where we get to meet with uh, dentists, nurses, OTs, and a couple of other specialties that we don't have at our table pharmacologists and we all get together i'm not really sure where that's going to head but we have a group project. pharmacist yeah pharmacist you said pharmacologist oh my goodness i meant pharmacist thank you bobby um we also have an online pharmacy course that we're taking in our own time that one's actually been a lot of fun yeah i was about to say that sounds awesome yeah and it's directly pt related and how the drugs they're taking are gonna affect their their therapy so that's been a lot of fun well, it's been the one thing that you didn't know because, I mean, a lot of people just from shadowing or um, tagging, they know about baclofen, they know about obviously pain medicine and opioids are going to make you sleepy, all that stuff. What's one sure. thing you learned about that, you know, you didn't really know about? Here's one. Uh, I had a really strong bias against opioid medication while I was in the hospital because I didn't like what I saw from our patients. But on the other hand, uh, what we've learned in our pharmacy class is that the uh, really strong anti-inflammatories, which I was generally more disposed to because they didn't affect mood and um, weren't as addictive like ibuprofen and other NSAIDs sure NSAIDs exactly exactly Uh, they affect your healing so they'll slow your healing rate so there's some some pluses and minuses there I now understand why they were prescribing what they were prescribing yeah it's crazy when you think about it Um, I'm gonna mess up his name I can't think of it the guy who does the ultra marathons you guys know what those are Oh, absolutely. The 100 miles and plus? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a few of them, and they're all crazy. So Sorry, this, I didn't mean that. <laughs> no, I mean, they, I do. Their elbows are the biggest part of their body. They're, if you look at, like, Not their, only that, they're just... What? Yeah. I mean, the, the dude runs a... The, I can't think of his name right now. The dude runs a marathon every day to prepare for these. Like, he daily runs a marathon. It's insane. And if you've ever tried to run a marathon or seen people who have, they sit for, like, a week. They can't move their muscles after yeah. a week. I mean, it's not good for your body. Also, what does he do for employment? Oh, he... Um, like, runs Google or no, something? No, no, no. He, he actually has a normal job. It's like, I want to say uh, trash or something like that. But basically, he, like, runs in between his lunch breaks. So he... he starts earlier he takes like a two-hour lunch break to run like 13 miles and then he runs like in the afternoon as well oh, okay so, so it's not a straight marathon so he's cheating i mean he obviously can obviously. <laughs> the dude runs 100 uh, miles in, oh, a, in yeah. 24 hours right but my point was that he was taking ibuprofen every day because of all the inflammation and stuff 
and he was having all these knee pain and I I wish I could remember his name and he was having all these knee problems and somebody told him to stop taking the ibuprofen and he immediately and didn't change anything else just stopped taking ibuprofen and immediately stopped having all these knee problems and everything that's awesome not saying that you shouldn't take it obviously but there are negative side effects with it it's not just something that you can pop whenever you want and no repercussions whatsoever right yeah, it's crazy. We actually, uh, to go along with that, in our microanatomy, which is our fifth out of six classes, I'm only forgetting one right now. Whoa, that was a good tie back. Nice. Microanatomy, is that about your biceps? But I'm Get no. it? Little biceps? Oh, my God. <laughs> you cut that. Absolutely not. <laughs> nope, that stays in. So in our microanatomy class, our little biceps class, they talked about... <laughs> why the inflammation uh, is important for tissue healing it ties back to your macrophages in part where the inflammation will draw through uh, chemokines, more immune cells and other um, cells that we didn't cover and go into such depth with. Have they talked about ice? Ice or rice? Ice. Like icing? Mm-hmm. No. Not, not like yet. smearing off, but like... But trying to... Uh, uh, limit the inflammation yeah i think that's a really interesting concept in therapy and treatment in general like yeah. everyone's very on the fence you either are pro or con I, like there's no eh, wishy-washy gray area what are your thoughts i don't know like going back to your microanatomy from what i remember and what i've read because i think kelly Sturette. well i can't think of the name of the book but it was like ice as the controversial modality or something like that and i read it and it was like well yeah that makes sense that you don't want to freeze tissue and impair blood flow if you're trying to promote healing. But if something's painful, to try and ice it so that you can then stretch it and increase your tissue extensibility. Like, my ankle really hurts. I can't stretch, so it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter and becoming more restricted. Well, if I ice it, then I can stretch it more, put those stresses through that tissue, mm-hmm. keep my mobility, and then you know once the icing effect wears off and I'm no longer numb leave it alone so the icing is to reduce the inflammation or to numb it so that you can't stretch it so the theory with that approach i guess is more to numb it so that you can then do the intervention versus like you know my ankle hurts and it's not moving well so i should just ice it because it's inflamed like everyone thinks it all comes from inflammation right where restricted mobility is probably more prevalent than we acknowledge okay so like ask Erica to do a squat right now and her ankles won't bend past 90. I mean, it's pretty common. Yeah. See a lot of limited dorsiflexion. Even she dorsiflexes to neutral. Awesome. But if she hurt three degrees, sorry. But if she sprained her ankle or something, everyone would be thinking like it's inflamed, like treat it. Like that's why she can't move. Like, well, no, because her baseline was not full active range, full passive range. What are your thoughts? You look like you're thinking. I am. Are you thinking about her ankle range? Absolutely. I'm thinking about those delicate ankles. So, baby giraffe. Hey. <laughs> On this podcast, we've acknowledged before that there's a difference between good pain and bad pain. Where when you're healing from a massive surgery, when you're healing from an injury, there is a pain to stop your body from doing that. So, my question is, why would numbing it and forcing it to do that be a positive thing in every situation i understand that every you know case is case by case and different but i'm just trying to understand what the point of numbing it to to force it to do something that it doesn't want to do is like how that's beneficial i mean that's the thing it's case by case and to clarify i am not an ocs i'm not an orthopedic specialist this is all anecdotal or of course like my little side passion projects of self-mobilization and everyone should be an athlete and everyone should move well but seconded yeah the idea that if someone's in pain they're less likely to move and if they're less likely to move you're going to see those like secondary sequelae where they no longer have the joint capsule mobility like the tissue gets tight and then that produces long-term effects so you know what it hurts and that's terrible but i'd rather you stretch it numb it and then get to normal ranges rather than deal with pain plus long-term probably pain from poor mechanics associated with that decreased mobility yeah no my 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 point wasn't to my point wasn't to say like stop you from doing it but what i'm saying is the your body creates a pain response because it you know it doesn't want to do it 
So that's what I'm saying. Where like what, right. you know, how do you understand? And not like you said, you're not an OCS, but how do you understand the difference between where your body shouldn't do something and you're and and forcing it to do it when you should? Actually, I have some thoughts on this, Bobby. If I Shoot, can jump in. Yeah, go ahead, man. Tag so, team. Uh, absolutely agree. Your body will inflame and cause pain when you shouldn't be doing something as a defense mechanism. I think the idea that I've heard to prevent further damage. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, the idea that I've heard around some of the sports circles is that the inflammation drawing in all those different chemicals, cytokines and immune cells creates a pressure and a pain response in the joint. And if you can ice it, get rid of all of that, those metabolic uh, byproducts and then flush the blood with the ice, you can increase range of motion just by getting rid of the things that are causing the pain. Right. But isn't the, isn't, no, 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 I, you did, you did, but doesn't the blood flow there to promote healing? Like, isn't that the point of the blood? You're right. That's where the controversy comes in. That's exactly That's what I'm saying. where yeah. people start asking questions about, should we really be doing this? or should Yeah, we do you want to vasoconstrict and then prevent blood flow, or do you want to just let it happen? And then, and then um, swelling comes, and then... Exactly. And then let's, I mean, let's flip it. What if you heat it and increase blood flow that way, right? Because that'll increase range of motion as well, and that'll increase blood flow to the area. You're going to flush some blood, and you're going to flush some of those byproducts those same metabolic byproducts but it's a different mechanism so what what are we trying to do right like what does your patient need yeah you can find research that supports both sides exactly and saunas are i mean saunas are hot in the streets right now real hot (laughs) because of that because exactly what you're saying where it's the increased blood flow all that stuff is quote unquote to promote healing which it is but I mean, I, I, just, I was just curious y'all's thoughts because I don't think there is a definitive answer, and that's why I was yeah. you know, curious what y'all were thinking. Have you run across uh, Dana Patrick, Dr. Dana Patrick at all? Doesn't she race NASCAR? Rhonda Patrick? It's a different woman. Okay. Danica? No. No, I don't know who Dr. Dana Patrick is. All right, so, I know Dr. Dan Patrick, if you're out shout there, out. I <laughs> sincerely oh, yeah, hope that I am not butchering your name, but she's done some heat, uh, some heat exposure research to see what happens when you expose a human body to heat using saunas. fact checks yeah uh our host is going to fact check me while we do this but what shout out jamie yeah hey what up uh so what she's finding what she's talking about what she's putting out is that there's a muscle sparing effect from heat so you can actually save some of your muscle gains by exposing the body to excessive heat in a sauna so things over 95 degrees is what she's looked at no. It's only pulling up Danica Patrick. I oh, my goodness. <laughs> See, I told you. Oh, my goodness. But, no, I was listening to something with uh, the Misfit Project. So, they did a two-part podcast. One was cold. One was hot. Talking about the benefits of extreme temperature exposure. Right. And I feel like for the hot one, I'd have to go back and listen to it. But it, was, it wasn't so much related to tissue healing. It was general hormonal, like the endocrine influence from oh. extreme temperatures. I mean, and... Which one of us hasn't, you know, jumped in a sauna or jumped in an ice bath after a hard practice, right? Like, those are just common practices these days, but I think these are important questions to ask. And we see it in the physical therapy clinic all the time. I saw it in the outpatient and inpatient therapies. All right, so talking about, like, jumping in an ice bath after practice and or, like, getting in a sauna after a workout, some of the stuff that we've talked about, I think we even talked about it on the podcast a little bit, the idea that you don't jump into an ice bath after a hard workout to prevent inflammation or prevent that aspect, it's to get your body temperature down. Oh. Like, that is the key yeah. strategy. Like, that's why you're jumping in an ice bath, so you don't get to a body temp of 106. And I was know. always under the impression that would the reason you jump in an ice bath is to heal your muscles quicker. Uh, you definitely feel better when you get out, but why? I'm because you're sure reducing anymore. the inflammation. That was always my understanding. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So not to cool your body temperature so, down. Yeah, because Bergeron was talking about at like CrossFit Games reference again. When I was in California, everyone was getting in a nice bath after the workouts because you know the ambient temperature on a turf field in Southern California in July is 110 degrees. But in Madison, yeah. Wisconsin, people weren't doing that same intensity of their exercise. Like the workouts still were terrible, and their body temperatures are still getting up there. But the ambient temperature isn't increasing that effect. 
you still see football players do it though. I mean, every football player after every practice gets in an ice bath. For sure. What position are the, those football players? Are they all the OLDLs that are morbidly obese? No. And then some of the some, you'll see some of the skill positions. Get yeah, in I was about to say you see a lot of the. You skill see a positions. lot of the big boys in there, right. but you'll see some of the skill positions get in there. I mean, are they doing it and seeing a benefit? Is it a placebo effect? I don't know. I mean, I'm just yeah, I don't know either. I'm just saying, there. like it's, uh, it's it's you know whether it's Southern Mississippi or Madison, Wisconsin, they're still getting in the ice bath after practice. That's why I was. I mean, I've jumped in up. an ice bath after a really hard workout, and it, it made me made me feel a little bit better. But I don't think there's yeah. any long term effect to it. It didn't make you feel better the next day because that's what I noticed whenever I did it. Yeah, I sleep better usually, right? And then I feel great in the morning. But not great, but <laughs> you feel better than you would have. Better than it would have. But what was the like outside temperature when you were doing that? Uh, you, now you're getting too specific, but well, I don't know. I, like I've done it when it was I remember a hundred degrees out, and yeah. then I get in like a freezing cold ice bath. Like just throw ice in a pool, you know, a couple of bags of ice, and then jump in all around it. So yeah, we our gym didn't have AC and it was in the summer, so I was taking ice baths and it felt great. This might be a dumb question. How much is your body temperature going to differentiate when it's uh, thirty degrees outside versus when it's you know eighty-two degrees in Southern California and no humidity? Is oh. it really going to be that different? Yeah. Not when you're not when you're done working out and you're cooling off when you're working out. Yes. Really? Yeah. Okay. So you'll get less blood flow to the skin. Which is really what is oh. driving some of the cardiac uh, work. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know. I just said, I just didn't really think about it until you guys brought it up. Sure. So uh, working out in a gym that doesn't have AC or heat uh, definitely exposes you to the both extremes. And in the winter, we have to bundle up. So we're talking sweatpants on sweatpants. So two pairs of sweatpants, the beanie is crucial because uh, you don't want to lose that heat through your head. Yeah, I hate it, but I've done it. Is this uh, to be? Is this um, lifting or is this cardiovascular exercise too? Uh, lifting is cardio. <laughs> if you do more than three reps, faster. it's cardio. Yeah. So this is uh, specifically lifting. Okay. And, but were I to go to a football practice, I always started with everything on and then stripped as I got hotter. Sorry, whenever you bring up football, I think about your tight end. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> go ahead. What were your stat lines for a tight end? Uh, I had. One and a half sacks and two catches on the year. <laughs> what up? It. I love it. <laughs> 40 <laughs> yards, baby. 40 yards. Damn, you never told me that. That's pretty yeah, impressive for 40 two yards catches. yards two catches. Yeah. What's up? One was for five. One was for 15. That doesn't equal 40. No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought I was going to get flagged. <laughs> I'll have to call my coach and talk about that. We'll ask. <laughs> did, did you also get a participation <laughs> trophy for sex? <laughs> no, but I did get a game ball. For I mean, he does. Uh, one and a half sacks means somebody else helped. So yeah. participation trophy, technically. The game where I got both of those sacks, I got the game ball. Oh, so you didn't get both. Yeah. <laughs> Slowly roll. I helped another guy sack, so I got a half sack. <laughs> so you got three half sacks. <laughs> In one pile. It was awesome. <laughs> What were we talking about? I don't know, I don't man. Know I don't know. Ice. We started. Were we icing? I definitely didn't. We started ice after on icing, game. but yeah. yeah. All right. All right. Let's anyway. get back to it. What yeah. was your? <laughs> what's your last class? Oh God. <laughs> I know. It's been thirty-one minutes, and we haven't covered all your classes yet. Oh, evidence-based practice. Wow. Best for last. Thanks, yeah, Nate. Perfect. Well, all right. I mean, Kinesis Pete's probably pretty interesting, but yeah, Kinesis is my favorite. Uh, sorry, everybody else. It just is that tickles my nerve bone. Yeah. My kinesis professor, Dr. Peter Miller. Shout out. Yeah. A lot of Peters in the kinesis field. Yeah, he was the... uh, All right, so... Evidence-based practice. Evidence-based practice. EBP. EBP. Um, What does that mean? Because I actually... I think I know what it means, but... Okay, so it is a class based on how to research and uh, apply the research that you find. To your practice every day oh cool yep that's all it is so we have a full 16 weeks on how to read research how to understand the quality of the research that we're reading and then how it could apply to what we're doing every day so so far we've just had an overview that is very basic going into the different types of research randomized controlled trial case study what it means to be peer-reviewed the fact that our textbooks are actually not peer-reviewed that's probably the biggest thing that i've learned so while they're written by doctors, they're not peer-reviewed. Go figure. 
Um, so far, it's been just very basic. Though a lot of our uh, classmates haven't come from necessarily even a biology background. So I feel like for maybe about half of the folks, this is all brand new. While for the other half, it's probably old hat. I'll let you know. I'll update you further as we go. Let's talk about your classmates. You had some interesting stuff happen this week. Did have some interesting things happen this week. You okay, mentioned so it in the group <coughs> message. So the first thing I want to talk about is what was this vote you had to do? Uh, okay, so last Thursday, we're recording on Friday, so that would have been yesterday, I suppose. We uh, met as a class to vote for our student council and government. So that includes president, vice president, social chair. Gotcha. I'm your own chair. Okay. Yeah, all those things. What did you think it was? Honestly, I didn't know. You just said we were voting for class president, and it just, I don't know. It didn't ring the same way that it does. I can see how that's probably more important in graduate school than it is in any other field. Yeah, I think you were leaning toward, I think you made a comment about prom king with Uh, I did not. You just made that up. (laughs) No, fact check. Check my text messages. Yeah. Um, I can. I know I didn't say anything about being a prom king. So, because I was prom king, no, not really. <laughs> weren't you though? Home no, I really king. wasn't. Nope, definitely none of that. I'm pretty sure I was not. I mean, not very popular. Most <laughs> likely to be average. Most, <laughs> yeah, I was the most average. <laughs> most likely to have a beard. Um, so that's what we were voting on the other day. But the thing all right, so I have a very serious question for you. Yeah, and I don't want you to be self-deprecating when you answer it. Okay. Why didn't you volunteer yourself to do it uh, as somebody who has experience, who knows more people in the profession than? I don't want to say everybody, but a lot of people. Student council is not the way that I want to make my impact. I don't think it has the far-reaching um, effects that I want it to have. So for the student council, or the, I guess the student government body that we have, the president and the vice president are the ones who interact with our professors, and we have an APTA chair for both the national and the state um, sections of the APTA. And those folks get to interact with people who are already in the field, but the responsibilities and roles of those particular um, positions tie them so tightly to the school that they don't get to do the things that I want to be able to do. And I don't think that they're going to be able to enact change the way that I would like to, both in the field and at the school. So I think that I I truly believe that these positions uh, hold you back more than they do good for you depending on what your goals are great resume booster they uh expose you to a lot of thought leaders and researchers in the field so depending on what you want to do that's great i just want to go a different way fair enough what do you think about that i was never much of a student government type really what is that serious really or no sarcastic okay i just um yeah i'm very anti-establishment so uh, i'm asking you because you are (laughs) anti-establishment but (laughs) i'm asking you because you are now a uh what's your title not residency director but you're a residency teacher i mean i'm currently serving as a mentor with a resident mentor there you go yeah so you're mentoring these people who i mean one person honestly probably or have had some kind of role in student government or something, that's how they get their resume out there and do it. How do you feel that that role tends to lead you? You know, is it beneficial? Is it not beneficial? Is it beneficial depending on what you want to do? Like Nate's saying, how do you feel about it? I'm, I'm asking you because you're the PT of this group and you've had experience in this field. So have you? do you think it's beneficial in any way to be the president, vice president of the class? I don't know, because I feel like I was just talking about this with a patient recently, like a very well-educated former, well, he still is a physician, and I'll just leave it at that, but thinking about how the trailblazers are usually not the ones who adhere to, like, the student government or the beaten path, you know, obviously there's those wild card examples, like Bill Gates dropped out, and so-and-so dropped out of, you know, college and higher education. I don't know, I just feel like I kind of agree with Nate that you get kind of tied to the shackles rather than having free reign. Kind of like Batman. Yeah, we just want to be Batman. He's my Robin. 
you'd be Robin. I'm the PT. But you both wear tights. Yeah. Look damn good. No? Follow for follow. Find me on Instagram. Um, <laughs> um, but right, no, I so think that I think the involvement in those things is beneficial if the right people are doing it. I think that what happens a lot of times is that people are doing it just for the external validation. Like I was this right, right. title, not I did this for blank. You know what I, I mean? Use that position to create this opportunity to do this. But I got, I got you. Um, I feel like somebody that you probably work with very closely was probably student president, all that stuff. And they're still very high up in their position and they've climbed very far because of that. Do you think that that helped them? Do you think that that hurt them? Cause I still think that you respect them a whole lot and you look up to them a lot for a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah. I'm not saying that, you know, just because you were in a position of authority in that sense makes you a dork or like, I don't respect what you say. There are a lot of really good people involved with, you know, my former schools programming and board of directors and, you know, the APTA neuro section and things like that. But I also think a lot of it becomes more of a, there's no good way to say it besides it becomes more of a parade rather than like a, an issue of substance. And I mean, I, I just have a very skewed view on politics, a poor understanding of a lot of things with political agendas and things like that. But I don't know. I would rather be the one just in the trenches, like sweating and bleeding over the patients because I'm working so hard for them than the one who's saying like, I'm doing this for you where like, well, what are you doing for me? Cause you don't treat patients the way I treat them. And I'm seeing positive response the way I treat them. Like, where's the disconnect? I know you're not trying to say anything bad about it, but I'm just saying that there are still positives that come from it. And there are still ways to make that position beneficial. If you can, how would you make that position beneficial? I mean, what's your why? Like, why are you doing it? It's deep, but that's real. So it makes me think of the Froning and Friends podcast. They always ask that. But that's real. When we were getting ready for our elections, the one thing that we, the one exposure that we got to what the roles and responsibilities were for each one of these elections was from the class above us. And every single one of them said that these positions are what you make them. But to follow up with that, every single position said, I didn't have time so I didn't do things in one form or another. They either said I didn't have the time to do what I wanted to and I focused on school or I didn't have the time because the work was so involved that I didn't want to take on the project because I wouldn't finish it in the next two years. Right. So from a student election perspective, I felt like I wasn't going to be able, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in this particular society i wasn't going to be able to create the change that i wanted to see and i wasn't be going to be able well change that i wanted to see i don't know what i want to see yet i'm a first year student man i don't know anything p1 what 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 up first year first semester i know everything p1.1 hit me up on instagram free programming but uh wow (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because i don't have an instagram and you don't have free programming (laughs) if you want to make a change i think you just have to be willing to put in the time and the work and people, the folks that I've seen in my class don't know what that means yet. And I saw that coming and I didn't want to, I didn't want to invest myself into something that I wasn't going to be able to see through to the end. And I wanted to be able to focus on things like some of the national conferences that the APTA has coming up where I can network and find people that I haven't met yet and meet some of the pe- the leaders in the field. I don't know. And so, podcast. well, yeah, talk about that, but <laughs> I know Zach at work, we were talking about this a lot because I feel that way very often. And he was saying, uh, I'm going to butcher the hell out of this too, but it was a... Zach Crump? Yeah. He was at at our white coat today. I wanted to talk to him, but he left before I came. Yeah, because he got an award. Um, So it was something from C.S. Lewis, and it was something to the effect of like this artist or this this worker was so focused on making his product the best or his you know, his life's work, the best thing it could be in trying to change the world and getting very distraught that it wasn't changing the world because he was trying to effectively make this tree. And all he could see was, like, all I've made is a leaf. But then upon death or, like, 
some out-of-body experience stepping away and realizing like oh well the leaf you made is part of the tree does that make sense like i see what you're trying to say you see what i'm trying to say without having the allegory on hand yeah the dude who wrote the line the witch in the wardrobe has a lot better uh lyrical devices than you do uh yeah and the (laughs) screw tape letters yeah Yeah. screw tape letters were on point but i haven't read those but i read the following six books after the line the witch in the wardrobe yeah exactly and the prequel amazing right so you know in that respect you're not going to change the entire infrastructure of PT school and student PTs in two years, but could you make some sort of lasting contribution? Probably. Like, you'd be a good one for it, I'd be a good one for it, but, I mean, I go into this all the time about the NCS or becoming a mentor, things like that. Like, if you're doing these things just for the external pat on the back, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Like, you know, if someone reads my CV and they see NCS, they think, oh, he must be really good. I could be terrible and just be a really good test taker. We yep. see this all the time. We just saw a professional strength coach kill a person. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, there's a lot more va- variability in that. But but still, like, you should be able to safely manage them. I mean, I'm a neuro PT. I drop people all the time. That was a great lecture at CSM a couple years ago. Like, don't hold on to me. Like, you have to let someone fail yes. to find the upper threshold. Failing to the point of death is not okay in strength and conditioning or anything. All right. So <laughs> that was a great transition by both of you. Uh, let's talk about that. Something I wanted to bring up uh, in the news lately has been styles of coaching because of the tragedy at the University of Maryland in their football program. Um, but it made me think about how people coach. And that's been the topic is how coaching is different than in the 50s when football coaches were yelling and screaming versus now where kids are responding differently to different type of things so nate and i have coached uh children i coached um travel soccer nate coached strength and conditioning for hockey programs and then i wanted to ask bobby about coaching adults because that's essentially what you're doing in physical therapy is coaching and telling them to do x y and z and doing this and that um so what I wanted to ask is, do you think that your coaching style, A, differs from person to person, and B, how, how, like, what are the different types of coaching styles that you have, and what are the different types of programs that you use with your patients? So as part of the residency, we just went through a module about motor learning and how to promote improved performance. And my favorite piece that I've read or seen recently so it's the optimal theory and essentially it boils down to promoting autonomy like promote the patient being engaged in their session find what their goals are and get them to buy into it because if there's no buy-in it doesn't matter how hard you yell at someone or how well you coach them if they don't care yep you're going nowhere fast so if you can promote that self-efficacy which you've laughed at me because i've said self-efficacious which is a real word. Did you Google it after you heard the podcast? And <laughs> no. And I left it in. Bandura, 1977, promoting self-efficacy. <laughs> it's a real thing. Cite in the podcast? That was amazing. That was incredible. Well, I did because the Parkinson's disease self-efficacy learning form starts Monday, so I'm a little bit nervous <laughs> about day one. But anyway, I don't think it matters if you're coaching – seven-year-olds with soccer or a 55-year-old with a spinal cord injury. Right. Like, if they don't want to be there or they don't care to be better or they don't understand how important it is for them to be better at X, Y, or Z, like, there's no point in doing what you're doing. All right. So, I think Nate can speak to this, too. When you're you're coaching kids especially, you always start with something positive that they're going to succeed at. Always, right? Every single time. Every time, man. You got to let them succeed. And you got to make it so basic. Like for soccer, it's easier to to um, to put into an analogy rather than lifting. So that's the only reason sure. I'm saying that. But with soccer, you start with no defense. Like whatever you're promoting, it's just nobody's Run in Run down the field, kick it in the goal. Woo, nope. Hey. You got to make seven passes. You got to make seven passes with your left foot. You got to make ten passes and two have to go to the outside. You got to do whatever. So but whatever it is, there's no days. defense. Right. And you succeed every time. 
But let's, well, not let's, every time, because there's always that one kid. That <laughs> one kid who just wants to do a Rabona or like something stupid and kicks it out. And then you do push Excluding that one kid, though. Yeah, that might be different than what I'm doing. Well, <laughs> that's that one kid do that. So listen, that's subtle, but that's really important. Agreed. You're giving them the opportunity to succeed, but you're giving them rules and defining a challenge by which they have to adhere. Also, for, that's what I'm saying. Freedom. Right. Right. To make their own decisions. So while you have to do seven passes, it doesn't matter where you go. This is a really basic example. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who you pass to, but you have to make seven passes and then you hit the goal, right? But for kids and where they are developmentally, that's harder than it sounds. Mm-hmm. But they're set up to succeed because there's no defense. But at that's first. At first, right? So what scales. stage of skill acquisition are they in? P1.1? Enthusiastic learner. <laughs> so this doesn't apply to them. This applies to the patients, which is why I was. This is why I was bringing this but up. But it to does you. apply to them because they are learning a new skill. It's so it does, but that's not what I'm talking about right this second. So what I'm saying to you is, when you have these patients and you set them up to succeed, and then you try to not break them, but um, push them past their limit. How are you coaching that, and are you coaching each, each individual person differently than you are? as a collective unit, do you not have one approach for every person? And I know what you're going to say that of course the answer is yes, you coach every person differently, but we're going to expand upon that. Yeah. But just like general learning principles. So a rule of thumb that I'll tell students or residents or whomever, you know, if someone can succeed at a task three to five times consecutively, they probably have a pretty good grasp on it. And you need to up the intensity. Whereas if they're failing three to five times, one, they don't have the task grasp. And two, you're probably promoting like negative thought reinforcement because they're like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. So yeah, you're right. Like you give them something they can do, but you have to teeter back and forth. So you hit that point where they can do something consistently and say like, hey, I want you to do this for homework to reinforce the good behavior. But when you're here with me, we're going to take it a step beyond what you can do on your own you're going to fail repeatedly but that failure is going to promote you know the next step right so with the uh, i mean let's just go back to the passing thing seven passes they get it every time or four out of five times for the first couple groups you add two defenders they're gonna fail immediately like immediately and you let them all fail and then you say all right let's pull back one defender and then so they do fail but then you allow them to have that challenge where you they have a chance to succeed if they do what they're supposed to do. So how do you do that in physical therapy? How do you coach patients to where you get to that? Cause I, and I feel like it's a thinner line in physical therapy than it is with coaching. There's more easier variables in coaching athletics with a team than coaching a person where they're having to do things by themselves. So how do you find that line? Okay. Well, I guess I agree with that, that there's more individuals in a team approach. It's not just, an individual drill i mean you could boil it down to the individual's passing ability and their ability their awareness it, my least my favorite point wasn't it had to do with individuals it has to do with but, there's more variables to cause more problems or more success but when you're coaching a person individually about how to walk again it's one person and yes there's a lot of variables with that but it's one person doing one thing how are you coaching them differently and how do you find that line of success versus failure that's a good one. I mean, it. every clinician has their own take on it. Like what defines success for the intervention or for a part of the intervention? And then, you know, if we go to locomotive training, because right now within the residency, we have a couple really awesome younger spinal cord injured individuals doing a lot of locomotive training. And one kid in particular, I think, will walk out of here without braces, without a device. Like he's just making such a turnaround. So what am I doing in his sessions? Um, I, I, I don't so want like, you. To, I don't want you to get in trouble. But no, I'm just no, saying, like, not but, what are you doing? But how do you? How do you? How are you? How do you decide when to make something harder, make it easier, and promote autonomy within that session? So it's always kind of flipping, flopping back and forth, and just trial and error. So locomotor training principle, like I'm trying to optimize gait mechanics. I'm trying to promote lower extremity weight bearing. Well, what if I let him hold on with his hands? Okay, so I've taken some weight bearing off his lowers, but then I increase the speed of the treadmill so he can then go faster. So I've taken, I'm making something 
I I am making something easier to make another thing harder. Right. So it's always a balancing act. You just have to decide what is the most important piece of this like big picture. So in your passing drill, what's the most important piece? Is it that they pass efficiently and they don't get picked off by the defender? Is it that they score? Is it that they find the outside flank? Like, and that's a, so. I mean, that's a great point because this I can use that drill for four different topics, like you just said. Yeah. It can be the same drill, and and that's what I'm just trying to get you to eloquate is that there is that line and what you're trying to promote. And then, so back to the PT realm, how does it go with each session? Like each session, do you have a goal that that goes to that larger goal or are you always just, you, you know, that's what I'm trying to, to figure out how you specifically do that. I mean, so like what, so for example, with your kid, you increase the treadmill and take weight bearing off so that it can do it easier. What's the benefit of that? And why would you do that as opposed to just not doing that and doing the same thing that you've been doing, which is keep the weight bearing on at a slower rate. So walking at a more normal gait speed relative to like a healthy individual, his age without a cord injury, promoting optimal gait mechanics at a normal walking speed if we think about motor recovery, like what pattern we're going to see, well, it would make more sense for him to move his limbs at a normal velocity. With less weight. With less weight sometimes rather than, you know, putting all the weight through his legs, but then he can't advance his legs at all because he can't weight shift and bear weight through one limb to support himself. So how do you decide when it's time to switch from weight bearing to non-weight bearing to, to do that? That's like to play around with upper extremity support and how much body weight support and things like that. And that's what I'm saying, where he's going to succeed a lot better with less weight bearing. But how do you decide when that time is to let him fail with more weight bearing and to try it and to succeed with less weight bearing? Clinical decision making of a novice versus an expert clinician. And that's what I, I mean, <laughs> we're getting to what I'm talking about here. Right. It sounds a bit like we're talking about specificity and progression. Where are you trying to go? All right, 1.1 1. 1 over there. I'm just saying. Slow your P-roll. I'm just trying. I mean, he got what I was asking. <laughs> no, I know what you're getting <laughs> I, at. I know, I know. But it's just so hard to describe because, especially in a mentor role, someone trying to get inside your brain for how you make decisions, if you think that... So for me, I think I analyze situations very differently than anyone else I work with. And I think everyone analyzes them differently. And that's why PT is so cool. Like, there is no one right answer. But I don't have a good answer as to what I'm what I'm tweaking to make something a successful piece of the intervention and like improve performance versus progress toward the overall goal. You know, like locomotive training, sure. there's so many variables there. I'm picking and choosing case by case and usually it seems to work out well. I'm and sure there are things yeah. I could do differently and would have resulted in better outcomes, but the what if game will kill you yeah rehab, that's what so. i was that's why i shook my head you can't do that and i and honestly i wasn't trying to like you know nail you down and say pick this or pick that but and i said that at the beginning like you don't have one straight decision for each end for patient it's not across the board you make your decision up on the spot and that's what i was kind of trying to pick your brain about and see like why you're doing x y and z yeah i think the big thing is that every session i try and explain to a patient what the goal is and i've told I know I've told every patient that I've ever worked with that my goal is to make them fail at some point because then I know what their upper limit is. Yep. So if you never let someone fail, like what are you doing? Okay. So this is going to be, I'm not trying to tie it back into my son because I feel like I talk about him on every podcast, but I got to let my son fail with everything. Everything he does, man. Walking, shooting the basketball, whatever, man. You got to because that's the only way people learn. Adults, kids, seven-year-olds, two-year-olds, 55-year-olds with spinal cord injuries, whatever, man. You got to let them fail. Do you feel like young clinicians have a hard time with that? Yes. Because no one wants to drop a patient. No one wants a patient to be upset. And these are all you know, valid concerns. I don't want a patient to walk away from me crying like, I couldn't do anything that Bobby was asking me to do. I'm, I'm a failure. Like, I'm never going to get better. But at the same light, if I don't, if I lay the foundation better, 
then I can do the same interventions and get a positive response to that failure. Like, okay, today, you know, Nate tying and packing and lifting, because that's something easy for us to talk about and you're a meathead. Like, if I've never cleaned 275, and the most I've ever cleaned is 245, and today I do like 235, 240, 245, I hit 250, I'm going to feel really good. I PR'd. And then I try 255 and I fail. Okay, I failed and I could be kind of pissed off at that, but I'm progressing toward that end goal. Right. So as long as you can, you have measurable progression, I don't know. As long as you explain why I'm pushing or why I'm going to make you fail deliberately. Like I just had a guy with an above knee amputation doing treadmill training. And he's doing awesome. He's been to our therapy clinic for over 100 sessions altogether. Like different prostheses and all these other things. And now he works with me primarily. I made him just outright lose it on the treadmill. Because he was going three miles an hour. He's never walked that fast. He's like, damn, that felt good. Like, Well, yeah, because that's normal walking speed for a healthy guy your age. That's what you'd be walking if you had both limbs. Do you want to do it again? Like, yes. Whereas if I had not ever explained anything to him and I put him up to that and he fell, like, oh, I fell, I don't feel good, like, let's go slower. Right. So confidence and autonomy are more important than anything you will ever do in training an individual, a new skill, or recovery of an old one. All right. So, boom. That's what I got to to say. Yeah. No, that was great, man. That's what I was trying to pull out of you, slowly but surely. It's late, and it's Friday night. Let's talk about it with children, and then I think we can wrap this up. Children are tough, man. If you're going into the peed section, which is where you and I can bring this back in with, uh, how did you think you got the most success out of children? Because for me, it was more, you had to do almost, you had to be almost overly positive than negative. I think children are easy to coach when you have their, uh, when you meet them where they are and you, communicate on their level oh yeah you always <laughs> that was one of the big things i talked about with coaching is like kneeling down to meet them eye to eye level and that's the first piece of it yep for sure that's for sure and i didn't i didn't know that i'll be 100 percent honest sure didn't know that but i didn't either until honestly we were at sheltering arms and somebody brought up kneeling down when you're talking to somebody who's in their wheelchair yep and i was like oh maybe i should do this with the people who are smaller than me I got a letter from a board member probably a year ago saying that they saw me in the lobby get on my knee to talk to a patient Yeah, and how much that impressed them. I thought, damn, that's terrible. And it, I mean, to be honest, though, you don't think about it unless you're doing it. Yeah. Like you're thinking like it's condescending to do it. You don't think about it until you have the empathy to put yourself in this yep, place of the, exactly. of the patient. The only time I stand over someone and talk to them is if they have a like cervical flexion issue and i want them to extend i'm like look up at me and i force them to do it <laughs> so it's therapeutic yeah that's what you're saying yeah but that's the first part you literally physically get on their level yep exactly the that's why piece. i rip my pants all the time because <laughs> get booty. low what that booty do squatting everything the second piece though is you just ask questions i swear oh really that. you just ask questions and you figure out where they are Hmm. mentally and emotionally because not all so we're talking about kids specifically right right kids don't uh progress at the same age chronological chronological age does not equal emotional age agreed yeah i'm 18 emotionally agreed forever you're you're 13 let's ask your wife you're a 13 year old just discovered 18 Uh, i thought you would have said i don't think my frontal lobe has developed which is terrifying because I'm wicked smart. You finished developing when you're 26, so you definitely have. Really? All right, Bobby, what'd you learn this week? But I learned, I don't know, really in the back end, like today, I learned how to more effectively use a new piece of bodyweight support technology and how to educate someone else as I'm learning the technology too. Like a theoretical, like, well, why are we doing this? And boiling it down to basics. So that kind of taught me a little bit about what it means to be a good mentor in a novel situation where we both had not experienced the task or the skill before, the sport of gate training, if you will. This has been a hell of a we, We've been gone for about four hours. <laughs> uh, glad to be back, boys. Awesome. We're going to do some more. 
Uh, we might start using some Skype to get you guys some more episodes. So hopefully we still have some listeners because <laughs> it's been a hot minute. Uh, but we're back. Um, any final words for him, Nate? Stay frosty. Thank you.